you can read this sign. It said, sir, we would see Jesus. Well, I'm no sir. But we would see Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together that we would. We do ask you, Lord Jesus, to reveal yourself to us in these words. Open our hearts more fully to you and your ways. Help us to follow you more faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Have a seat. At first glance, it seems like an innocuous, random statement. Jesus just making conversation, yes? Who do people say that I am? What's the gossip? What's the buzz about me? You know, that uh, leaders often need to ask that question because people stop telling the leaders what they really think. None of you do that, of course. What's the gossip, Jesus says. But by now, we know that there's nothing arbitrary about the things that Jesus asks, right? And especially the things that are recorded in the gospel. And just in case we had a question, Luke makes it clear. Because we're told at the beginning of this passage that Jesus was praying, praying alone. You know, every time in Luke's gospel that he's praying, praying alone, something pretty important happens next. Sometimes he chooses his disciples. Sometimes he's going off to the cross. In any case, Luke wants us to remember that and, and notice, listen. What are they saying about me is no random question. And the disciples have one main answer. People are saying you're John the Baptist, whom, as we know, was uh, killed, beheaded, right? He died. So that's interesting that that's what people think. And then other disciples, you can imagine them, right? Wanting to get their licks in, get their little A. They add some minority views. Some say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets come back from old. All, in any case, we learn that the crowds think Jesus is someone, someone important, someone who's a miracle, right? They think he's someone who's come back from the dead. How about that? And he's definitely also someone who's doing big things for God, like Elijah, Elijah did. If you know the story of Elijah, he did some crazy things, like John the Baptist did, drawing the cloud, crowds to him to repent and be baptized. Jesus is a big deal to the crowds. But Jesus' next question is what he's aiming at. It's much more pointed, gets to the crux of the matter. And you, who do you say that I am? In the Greek, it's very clear. It's emphatic like that. It's not just you. It's you. Who do you say that I am? Can you imagine the deafening silence that followed? You know, that question that the professor answers, and you don't want to go on record with the wrong answer. I, I kind of imagine that's what happened. The disciples are kind of gulping. What do we say? We don't want to say something wrong. Well, that is until Peter speaks up, as usual. And you heard what he said. You are the Christ of God. Or in Matthew's version, you are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. Christ, the anointed one. The same word that in Hebrew is Messiah. means the same thing. And who in those days was anointed? Two groups of people, kings and priests. So, again, Peter is saying Jesus is important, an important person in God's work. And, of course, there was a prevailing view of what the Messiah would do. He would free God's people from their oppressors. He would conquer those Romans, take over, ushering in power and authority of the Jews. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's actually making a dangerous, treasonous comment. I wonder if the disciples were looking around, making sure no one heard. We miss that, I think, because the story is familiar to us. And Jesus quickly tells them, don't tell anyone. In fact, the words there are strictly charged and commanded. It isn't just a don't tell anyone. It's don't you dare tell anyone. Now, Jesus is agreeing with Peter, with Peter's words that Jesus was the Christ. So, of course, he would say, don't tell anyone. He didn't want to get arrested and killed Prematurely, people found out. But actually, in the passage, you can tell there's another reason that he tells them to keep quiet. He knows they have no idea what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. They have no idea what that's meant to look like. And only now, once Peter has made it clear that he thinks Jesus is the Messiah, only now does Jesus begin to explain the implications of that, what it would look like, that Jesus would certainly initiate the rule of God. In fact, eventually that rule of God would overthrow the Romans, but he would free God's people from oppression, but it wouldn't look anything like what they expected. Jesus would not sweep in on a white stallion with armies, to conquer the Romans with the disciples as his lieutenants by his side, which they hoped for. Instead, he tells them, the Son of Man will suffer many things. He'll be rejected by religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court government. He'll be rejected by the very ones who shouldn't. He'll be executed. And on the third day, be raised. This is the opposite of what they expected, and I'm sure it's the opposite of what Peter thought when he said, you are the Christ of God. In fact, Matthew's gospel, you'll remember, tells us that Peter is horrified by the idea of this. Never, he tells Jesus, not on my watch. This should never happen to you, Jesus, Peter says. But Jesus will have none of it. He fires back to Peter, get behind me, Satan, or as we might say it, go to hell. Jesus was choosing the cross, choosing the cross. It was his vocation from day one. He wasn't tricked into it. He wasn't forced into it. He chose it, and he wanted his disciples to know 
that this is what it meant for him to be Messiah. And as uncomfortable as his disciples were about Jesus' vocation, Jesus isn't finished. If that made them uncomfortable, how about what comes next? This life of choosing the cross, of choosing to die, isn't just for Jesus, he says. It's for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. The implications for his followers are as challenging as they are for Jesus himself. He says, if any of you want to follow me to be my disciple, here's the drill. Choose the same sort of life I'm choosing. That is, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now you know this, right? You've heard it. And some of you, I bet, have heard a lot of sermons about it. But let's have a quick review of Jesus' call to his disciples and talk a little bit about what it looks like, once again, to say yes to him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's really three different ways to say the same thing. Let's unpack them and see what Jesus might want us, how Jesus might want us to live. First, deny yourself. When we hear the word deny ourself, when you hear deny yourself, what do you think of? I mean, there might be something in your head right now. It means give up something you love or you're addicted to. But when Jesus says you deny yourself, he was saying a lot more than that. It wasn't so much giving up stuff that he was saying, but rather disown yourself. Give up your way. Bruner, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, one of my favorite commentators on Matthew and John, says this. Self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is, as it is, as it is excuse me, giving up on ourselves as lords. It's a decision to let another lord rule one's life. Deny yourself means choosing not to get your way. Choosing to give up needing your way. Remember what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane? as he approached his crucifixion. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Right? Not my will, but yours. That's what it means to deny yourself. Lord, not my will, but yours. Second, take up your cross. You can picture it, right? You've seen the movie. Right? Anyone who's crucified takes that big, rough-hewn crossbar that will become a cross, carries it on his back through the city, through the jeering crowds. Remember, this is a culture of shame. So that's as almost as bad as the act itself, carrying this cross through the cities, through the humiliating, jeering crowds, escorted to the place that would become their death. Picture, picture carrying that rough-hewn beam through the city, knowing where you were headed, hearing the jeers of the crowd, knowing you were on a one-way street with no return, no future, knowing that you are on the street of shame to a torturous death. Take up your cross. Jesus says, choose it. 
Choose it. Choose death. Choose shame. Choose to give up your future for me. And finally, follow me. Again, we can picture this, right? We know what it looks like in the Bible. The fishermen left their nets. Matthew, the tax collector, left the tax collector booth and his good stream of revenue. Political agitator left his agitating to follow Jesus. They chose another way of life to be with Jesus as he taught and healed and to learn how to do the things that Jesus did. Saying goodbye to the expectations of others in, other, in, in order to pursue a life with Jesus. Remember how Jesus' family came and found him while he was in the middle of the crowd? I mean, I, I actually think he thought they, they, his family, his brothers, sisters, and mother, I think they thought he was a little crazy. He kind of got off the deep end. So they come to set things straight, to pull him out of the crowd. Remember, he didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus says no to them. I'm following my father's path. We say no to pursuing self-fulfillment in order to say yes to following God's call. Now, I know most of you have decided maybe more than once, to follow Jesus. And some of you, I know for sure, have done it for a very long time. But I think sometimes we forget the revolutionary charge that we've been given by Jesus. We forget what it means to deny ourselves, to give up our own will. We forget what it means to take up our cross. We forget what it means to follow him instead of our own inclinations, don't we? So what does it look like to do that in practice? I have a couple of little examples. Do you remember in Acts when the church was first being persecuted? Do you remember that time that Peter was in jail and then he got out? And he came and met with the thrilled disciples, so they couldn't believe it was Peter. And they come together to pray. And what would you expect them to pray in a situation like this? I know what I would pray. I'd pray, save us from this, Lord. Protect us. Right? That's not what the disciples prayed. Remember? The disciples prayed, give us boldness, Lord, in the face of this. Give us boldness. Doesn't that take your breath away? Could we be a people who do that? Paul, too, regularly talked about the privilege of suffering for Jesus. He talked about sharing in Jesus' suffering. And he counted it a great honor to weep. I think of the 19th century missionaries. Do you remember when that big missionary movement began? Uh, much of it in England, right? Moving from their homeland to other nations to teach them about Jesus. The missionaries would pack their belongings in a big wooden box. All their earthly belongings, or at least all that they would need, or thought they would need. That box would become their coffin. They knew they were on a one-way street. They knew they would not be returning home. They gave it up. The life expected of them 
I'm sure not all of their parents were happy about it. Just saying. My husband has a friend who went to a conference of pastors. It was a large conference, hundreds of pastors in the room. And the speaker said to them, how many of you are serving in a region where you wanted to live? And my husband's friend said he was shocked. Two people raised their hands. Think of that. How many people of these pastors, how many of them chose where they wanted, well, wanted to live? How many of them were living in their heart country, so to speak? Two. And my husband's friend was one of them. He was from Pittsburgh. And he couldn't imagine anyone wanting to live anywhere else. Pittsburgh is like that. It's a wonderful thing about them. Uh, two people raised their hands. Compared to these examples, I have a little one that's very trivial for my own life. For my whole career, I've wanted the summer off. Any of you like that? <laughs> summer comes, I kind of wish I were a teacher, right? I want that summer. I don't know what it is, it's deep in my bones. I had a colleague at the Diocese of Pittsburgh and she would laugh when the, su the summer would begin to come and I said, I just want this summer off. And she laughed, she said, Mary, you say that every year. So. It was even worse when we moved to Winchester. We live in the woods. It's beautiful. And it's a great place to enjoy. So in 2020, I decided I was taking the summer off. I was going to do no coaching, no conflict resolution for Bishop John. No, I promised my kids and my grandkids, this summer is yours. I'm all yours. Well, you're laughing, so you know what happened. Jim Robb and Phil Dame came to talk to me, or I came to talk to them, and they said, Mary, will you come help us? Help us heal. I said, well, yeah, but I can't do it during the summer. You remember that? I did say that. Well, that's not what happened, right? It's not what happened. Well, then I was kind of done with that consulting gig, I don't know, early in 2021. So I said to my kids again, you're laughing, it's this summer, I promise. This summer, I promise, I'm yours. Well, you know what happened last summer? The senior warden and Bishop John came to me, Mary, Truro needs an interim rector. And they need someone who understands Truro, who the staff trusts, who, get along well, who gets along well with Jamie and Mike. And I wonder, they both said this separately, they both said this, and I wonder who has, who is like that? And who has the skills to do this? Who could you imagine doing that? They only had one person in mind. I, I was forming a list in my mind. Anyway, this summer I didn't even promise. I'm sorry, no such thing. I gave up my summer for y'all. And let me just say, that's the thing about following Jesus, isn't it? You give it all up. Even a little thing like a summer, you give it up. And then he gives back to you. Right? 
That's the thing that the disciples missed when Jesus said what he was about to do, to suffer many things, to be rejected, to be executed, what comes next, and to be raised on the third day. And Jesus says to them, you heard it, right? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will gain it, will save it. That's the end of the story. Doesn't take away the challenge of the beginning of the story, right? But there is that promise. How about you? How might Jesus be asking you to follow him? My husband, as you know, is a lifetime youth minister. He told me I could use him as an example. Early in our ministry, and his ministry of youth ministry, a well-known Christian leader who many of you know, said to me, tell your husband to get a real job. And I have to say that my parents probably agreed with him. They weren't too sure he was fully employed. And I certainly wasn't always happy with his salary, such as it was or wasn't. He could have easily become a lawyer. He has that kind of mind. And there's nothing wrong with being a lawyer if God calls you to it. But in any case, he chose to give his life to Jesus for kids. But when you see him with college students, when you see him interact with these young Christian leaders, you see his true self. He's more his self with them than he ever would be in a courtroom. And when you see the kind of lives his protégés live after being a part of the college program, the Josiah Project, you can't help but give thanks to God for the impact these people are making for the kingdom of God. I can't help but rejoice that Wiss denied himself, took up his cross, and followed Jesus in little and big ways through the years. Although I wasn't always a happy camper, I'll admit. I'm grateful that he said yes to following Jesus. Self-denial for Jesus' kingdom results in unspeakable joy along with the trials. My brothers and sisters, what would it look like if you and I took a fresh look at these verses and really took them to heart? What would be the same or different about what you did next week or next month? What if we gave a renewed yes to denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him? And here's another question. What would Truro look like if we did it together? I think it would look something like the beleaguered church in Acts. You know, little church, little few people. But there was this boldness and joy that was contagious. 
boldness and joy in the face of suffering and humiliation. What if we look like that? An impact for God they made way beyond their numbers, way beyond human understanding. And in fact, the world did get turned upside down by them. What would it look like for us? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are people who want to follow you. We need your help. Teach us what it looks like to follow your example, to choose to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. And Lord Jesus, teach us to do it together. Form us into a people pleasing to you. In Christ's name. Amen.